The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk and should not be considered legal, business, or medical advice. Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Maze podcast. My name is Mike McLafferty and I'm the CEO and founder of MJM Advisory and Educational Services. Today, we will discuss an update on the U.S. handling of COVID-19 universal health care and our public health system. We are pleased to have John Dalton as a guest on our podcast today. John is a Senior Advisor Emeritus at Bessler and co-founder of the Healing American Healthcare Coalition, where he serves as editor of his twice-monthly newsletter, The Three-Minute Read. He's a past president of the New Jersey chapter of the Healthcare Financial Management Association. John has served on the boards of Children's Specialized Hospital, the Robert Wood Johnson Healthcare Corporation, and St. Joseph's Health. John is also a co-author of the recently published Healing American Healthcare Lessons from the Pandemic, dedicated to the healthcare heroes who perish providing care to COVID patients. John, welcome. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the Healing American Healthcare Coalition? Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here with you. During the more than 50 years that I've spent in healthcare, I've enjoyed the opportunity to work with hundreds of providers throughout the country and get a firsthand understanding of the challenges in being able to deliver quality and patient-centric care to Americans and to do that in a cost-effective manner. After 12 years with the Sisters of Charity and Grammar in high school, I always viewed healthcare as a fundamental human right and not as a privilege for those who could afford it. So I've always found it troubling that so many tens of millions of Americans are blocked from access to healthcare for lack of insurance coverage. I retired from Bessler at the end of 2010, and as your retirement provides you with a little more discretionary time to pursue your passions, and for me, one of those has always been universal health care. I began studying delivery systems in other countries, uh, mostly members of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. That's currently the 38 member nations that constitute the developed world. But my primary focus has been on our peer countries, primarily France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. I've worked with Ed Eichhorn, my co-author, on several projects at Stevens. We're both engineering graduates of that university. And I learned along the way that we both shared a mutual interest in moving the U.S. to universal healthcare. In 2019, Ed co-authored the first book in the series, Healing American Healthcare, A Plan to Provide Quality Care for All While Saving $1 Trillion a Year, along with Dr. Michael Hutchinson, who is a neurologist and biophysicist at Mount Sinai. Their all-care plan fosters competition, reduces cost, improves outcomes, and lets doctors beat doctors by eliminating or streamlining the patient billing and data entry by the dreaded healthcare bureaucracy that we all mm-hmm. contend with. The Healing American Healthcare Coalition was founded to foster that advocacy effort in March 2020. With the time you've taken here, and uh, you mentioned the uh, all the different developed countries, uh, in particular the 
three or four countries that you bring focus on. I would imagine this studying really had an impact on having you follow the progress, especially from the U.S. point of view, of how they were handling COVID-19. Yes, it did, Mike. And actually, oddly enough, that spark was ignited in 2008 in Moscow. I was part of an HFMA delegation to Russia to meet with our counterparts there, along with our colleagues from the UK Healthcare Financial Management Association. So we spent four days in meetings with our peers in Russia, discussing alternative approaches to healthcare delivery. I got to deliver a lecture on America's use of healthcare quality indicators. We toured a hospital, a dental clinic, dental school, and a clinic. But surprisingly, to my shock, at the end of the visit, when the Russians were asked for their opinions, whether they would choose American healthcare or Mm. British healthcare, to my shock, they chose the National Health Service. That's what really sparked my uh, doing the research and interest. And as over the last 10 years, I've done a lot of speaking and writing on those issues. I've noticed also that I've seen any kind of interviews with individual patients from the UK or any other country that had national health care, and they were talking about some current events in the country, when they brought up the fact that they had a national health care service, the response was always the same. Everybody started clapping. So the idea that you had this coverage and you didn't have to worry about these services was a relief to people. Obviously, we're we're gonna we're gonna focus on the U.S. here in COVID, but there's a lot of pros and cons on these services as far as timing to get serviced and how difficult yes, is it to yeah. get a surgical procedure versus a primary care visit and all those things. But I, I think it's fair to say that countries that have uh, some sort of universal health care coverage. They see that as a significant benefit in their society. So why don't we, at this point, focus on how we're doing rather today, successes and failures. Let's talk about, and I'm going to just share on a summary basis. And this is from research from the CDC, the Government Accountability Office, Scientific American. Here are just some, on the success side, some things they consider successes and I will say before we start this discussion that unfortunately, there's going to be a lot more items brought up on the research about failures than successes. But on the success side, vaccine development is the number one item that comes up consistently from all these different organizations. The second is, which has been described from both of our experiences in healthcare, the heroic efforts of healthcare workers during this, especially during the pandemic. Another thing that came up, which surprised me a little bit, but there seems to be a consensus, not that the entire public followed CDC guidelines, but that the majority of them apparently did follow the guidelines for the most part. And then the fourth thing as a success, not initially during the previous administration, but certainly as the new administration came on board, an effort to combat misinformation. So those four items, but it was made clear, at least from the research, I and I'm interested to hear your opinion, that the development of vaccines seemed to dwarf all of these successes. What's your take from your research and following this data very closely? I agree with you, Mike. If I had to single out 
the most important success during the pandemic. It was the Operation Warp Speed's accelerated development of these vaccines. Now, it didn't start in March 2020. The fundamental research for the COVID vaccines began back in 2003 following the SARS outbreak. Remember, the novel coronavirus is SARS-CoV-2. The first coronavirus was the SARS outbreak in China back in 2003. That began our National Institutes of Health fundamental research. So the mRNA vaccines are the results of about a 20 year development process that got greatly accelerated during the pandemic. I'm old enough to remember standing in line for the Salk vaccine in the 1950s as a teenager. Those were medical miracles at that point in time. In my judgment, the development of the mRNA vaccines to date is the medical miracle of the 21st century. They're safe, they're effective, and they're able to be modified in order to combat the variants and subvariants that we're seeing today. And I think you bring up an important point. I've heard from not only people in the healthcare industry at times, but certainly people outside the healthcare industry who believed that the development of mRNA was something that happened overnight. But as you brought up, this was something going back all the way to 2003, and it took an extended period of time for this technology to get developed. And the other thing I've heard sparingly, but I have heard it from a few people who were anti-vaxxers that I've come across over the years, they were afraid to take the vaccine because they were told it was going to impact their DNA somehow. And I have not seen any research anywhere that I can find that would verify such a thing. And certainly no, what I would call credible website, clinically or medically, that would also support that. So I don't know if you've heard some similar misinformation about time for development and the impact of these uh, these vaccines. There have been all kinds of widespread rumors on the internet. For some reason, if people see something in print, uh, they believe it, and it's not necessarily backed up by clinical studies or facts. Early on, in, after the vaccines were developed, there was a definitive study that outlined why mRNA could not affect DNA. We summarized that in the th- one of our earlier issues of the three-minute read. I haven't seen anything subsequent to that, but at least there was w- one scientific study, probably from the National Academy of Sciences, that did dispute that finding. That's certainly good to hear. And again, I think that with the current administration, a lot of the potential misinformation initially, a lot of that did get challenged. I think we're in agreement, and I think most people are in the medical and scientific community that this development using this operation warp speed of the vaccines as quickly as they were developed. And then the current administration coming up with a distribution protocol, which had not existed prior, was something that um, was a major success for the U.S. Let's talk about things that we could have done better. Some of the things, again, from the research, initially, the prior administration somewhat downplayed the danger of COVID-19 and that it was something that was not going to be significant. It was going to go away. Only a few people were going to get it. A lot of the experts who were involved were sidelines initially, weren't even allowed to speak to the public and advise them. A very slow and flawed approach on testing. The WHO had a testing kit, which for some reason, the CDC decided they were going to do their own, and that didn't work out too well. Very poor tracing, isolation, quarantines, really never got very good at that. The whole issue with masks, initially, a lot of people thought that uh, or got the impression that mask for the general public probably wasn't necessary. And that was because there was 
confusion initially is it was this airborne spread or not and then finally when it was confirmed it was airborne spread then things changed and then people were told you need to mask up but there was a fair amount of confusion there for a while unfortunately people who from a racial profile or just inequity in getting medical services these folks were at a significant disadvantage of getting the proper health and guidance they needed during the pandemic and the other thing which i think is really important in our country when it comes to the public health system you and i have discussed ourselves a few times the lack of investment overall but uh, we have this decentralized approach so a lot of countries that did well combating the outbreaks from a public health point of view they had a centralized public health system ours is decentralized meaning that a lot of the authority is turned over at the state and local level yeah. and the federal government provides guidance it provides funding but it's up to the state and the local governments to carry out a lot of these things a lot of the public health programs at a state local level have been underfunded for a long time based on all of these things that we could have done better what's your take on some of these things to start off no country got it right 100% of the time but many did far better than the US just one sidebar if you look at new zealand the prime minister jacinta ardern denies at the get go that new zealand did not have adequate icu bed capacity and the significant intervention was required So she basically shut down the country and at one point New Zealand had completely eliminated the coronavirus and, and it saved many lives. But remember the four Pacific Rim countries that did so well throughout our pandemic also were affected by SARS. The SARS outbreak was really a Pacific Rim outbreak. So they learned from that and they applied those lessons rigorously. South Korea, Japan and Australia, New Zealand Uh, consistently have been in the top 5 in the OECD in terms of keeping a, a low fatality rate. The next 5 are the four of the five Scandinavian countries and Canada are neighbor to the north. In terms of public health, the problem there is that when public health is functioning effectively, whether it's centralized or decentralized, nobody notices because you outbreaks are contained people are healthy we've had legionnaires disease outbreak recently that's been contained So when public health is working well nobody notices and it's easy to overlook it and when you're looking to save taxes at a county or state level so that is a major investment that needs to be made over the next several years here in the US we talk in healthcare about interoperability they're all still manual with right, different sure. forms different data acquisition so that's going to continue to be a challenge for the US as we go forward. Yeah, let's hope going forward that we've learned a little bit from this. I noticed that there was already a vaccine available for the recent monkeypox outbreak and initially that seemed a little bit slow as far as manufacturing and distribution of the actual vaccine available, but like you said, once things seem to go well on the public health it just seems like it goes away and when that happened some people reached out to me and said what's going on with this monkeypox virus i don't hear anything anymore i said that usually means things are going well that just seems to be the nature of how things function in the country regarding these outbreaks as far as politics here in our country in the us healthcare is in the middle of political battles all the time and that certainly i think 
made it more difficult as far as guidance being followed at certain points. And certain states decided to take the lead to break away from guidance sooner than later. But as difficult as that was, and in some of those states that did that, did you notice in in some of those states that broke away from the guidance earlier than others, any indication that some of the fatalities in those states were higher at that point? Because initially, a lot of the fatalities were in the Northeast. When Metro New York joined Milan and Madrid as the global epicenter of the pandemic, all hell broke loose, as you and I both vividly recall. From mid-March 2020 through the end of April, the images, it's still hard to fathom what we endured and got through. Massachusetts also was hit hard. Remember, 2.2 million visitors returned from Europe through the three New York airports in February, many of them bringing with them the coronavirus. And what hit us on the East Coast was different from the coronavirus that hit on the West Coast. Remember, initially, the first deaths were in Washington State at a nursing home in Kirkland. The virus that came here from Europe was more virulent. So Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey were very hard hit. And up until September 2021, New Jersey was at the highest per capita fatality rate in the U.S. In September 2021, sadly, we were surpassed by Mississippi. I just published an article in the Garden State Focus where I took a hard look at the two years from June 30, 2020 to June 30, 2022. Our CMOs were meeting daily, sharing information, learning how to deal with these very sick patients who were crashing by the scores, shared that knowledge with the rest of the country. Unfortunately, some of us didn't listen. And when I looked at the data for the, those two years, for I stuck with six states, the Northeast, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and then three Sunbelt states, Florida, Texas, and Georgia. To my shock, when we looked at just those 24 months in isolation and compared those to the OECD, the fatality rates for the three Northeastern states were about at the OECD average for that period of time. So we were midway in the OECD. Not bad, but not great. When I looked at the three Sunbelt states, they ranked at the bottom of the barrel in the OECD. At June 30, the U.S. was 31st out of 38 in the OECD. The only countries trailing us were seven former Soviet satellites. The three Sunbelt states matched all of them except Hungary. Hungary is at the bottom of the barrel by a very wide margin. And the next one up is the Czech Republic. So the opportunity missed there is incredible. Literally hundreds of thousands of Americans would be alive today if we had just learned from what we endured during that horrible period here in the Northeast. Let's talk about the subvariants and what can we do about those? It seems most of the, the feedback we get on the scientific side right now is that We may be headed to an annual shot similar to a flu shot for these variants going forward for some period of time anyway. And maybe just talk a little bit about these folks who are referred to now as long haulers. We could talk about that just for a little bit. But what to me, those are two key challenges going forward. But let's talk about from your perspective, 
dealing with these new variants that seem to come out every couple of months. There seems to be some talk about a new variant. Yes, and the there are two new subvariants that last week were 40% of the new infections here in the U.S. In America, much of that, the threat relates to the fact that we continue to have a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And that's over a year ago, Dr. Walensky, who's head of the CDC, expressed her concern that, and here's her quote, nearly every death especially among adults due to COVID-19, is at this point entirely preventable. This is June 2021. That's 15, 16, 17 months ago. The problem we're facing is not so much here in the Northeast, where we're highly vaccinated, probably 80% fully vaccinated. It's in the states that where the, literally there are many states where more than one third of the population remains unvaccinated. And th- that's a threat to us on an ongoing basis because viruses aren't political. They don't belong to a political party. They don't respect national or state boundaries. They just look for hosts, petri dishes, to accept them where they can stimulate and mutate. And that's the big issue facing us now. If we get through this winter surge, we will be hitting endemic stage. But we have a long way to go to get there. And right now, Unfortunately, with RSV and the seasonal flu raging, we may be facing what the pundits are calling a, quote, triple-demic. The healthcare system is being stretched to its limits once again. I see more and more large healthcare institutions have established uh, these long-hauler programs. And the more I read about it, at least recently, you get the impression that a lot of people, after about a say the most, a six-month period of time, they do seem to be recovering to some extent. I haven't seen any specific detailed studies percentage-wise, but I get more of a hopeful sense of feedback. And maybe it's because these different programs have been set up and they've been monitoring people and trying to assist them. But it is still somewhat of a mystery as to exactly what has caused this on some people. There's a lot of theories and they're trying as best they can to deal with people's symptoms. What have you heard? Do you think they're making some progress in this area? Hard to tell. 10 to 20% of those who contract COVID wind up with some of the long COVID symptoms. Some more serious than others, and some of the research studies I've seen look at the genetics. Some people may be genetically predisposed to long COVID, but it all gets back to your chances of contracting COVID or long COVID are less than greatly if you're fully vaccinated and boosted. And the evidence just the other day, we saw Moderna's results on their bivalent booster, boosting antibodies as much as 15 times after administration. Americans have to protect themselves against contracting COVID. And unfortunately, almost one third of the population has not. So that's my major continuing concern. Because long COVID is going to be expensive to treat. It's going to be for many people, a chronic condition, just adding to a whole list of chronic conditions. We're also seeing a lot of what they're calling rebound COVID. We're finding that with the variants developing, many people who've had COVID are those who are vaccinated and boosted, have relatively mild cases, but the chances of death and hospitalization are much higher if you're unvaccinated. I would agree with what you're saying. I haven't seen anything specific as far as finding a cause, but I do agree. I've seen a lot of information about if you're vaccinated, if you're boosted, and whatever you can do to protect yourself, if you do get the virus again, 
it's probably more uh, from a mild point of view, right. certainly less than having you get into a very ill and going into a hospital. John, thanks for spending time here. I'm just summarizing for everybody what we have done well in the U.S. The, the major thing is the vaccine development and the mRNA technology, which we agree has taken more than a decade of development and research to set up. We can't say enough about the efforts of the healthcare workers doing all this. And it seemed that most of the public did follow the guidance and eventually were able to get some a better understanding as far as what information was true and what wasn't. On the things we could have done better, certainly initially downplaying this virus, very slow, getting out testing to everyone. A lot of confusion initially that this was airborne versus contact spread. And the whole difficult issue for this country about putting investment in public health. Hopefully, one of the things we've learned from all of this is that we do need to make a major investment in public health in the country. And just because we don't have an outbreak right now, doesn't mean that uh, we need to wait till something happens again. So hopefully, not only at a federal level, but at a state and local level, we'll see that. John, thank you for being a guest on the podcast today. Please follow our podcast to be advised when a new episode is available. You can email us at thehealthcaremaze at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions. I want to thank everybody for listening to our podcast. 